0: A faith or a religion that has as its savior a person who like a lamb was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent and opened not his mouth, and who died a terrible and humiliating death at the cross. Isn't that an awkward proposition in this day and age? a time like ours of scientific explanations, of instant information and communication on everything, a time of enlightenment, civilization, and sophistication. Doesn't such a proposition belong to a more primitive, cruel, and backward society? But then let me ask you another question. In this modern, enlightened, civilized, and sophisticated time, what is your personal comfort in life and in death? And what sustains you as an individual in the ups and downs of your life? And what will comfort you when the final certainty of death appears imminent? In life, is your comfort all the modcoms, the car, the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone, the i-this, that, or the other, or money, or power, or the ability to attract a gorgeous and nice partner? Because all these things can be pretty iffy. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And while they're here, they're sometimes feeling somewhat empty or in death. We all heard the usual platitudes at the grave. Lived his or her life to the full, was loved dearly, will always be in our memory. But how much comfort are these things really? For me, when I'm dying know that soon I will no longer participate, see, hear, or do anything in this world? The first question, of course, is a very old one. Because already the enlightened Greeks thought that the Savior at the cross was foolishness. And already the civilized Jews thought it offensive. So there isn't much news here. And the second question, what is your only comfort in life and death is actually the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the answer there is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul and in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is on that question, on that question who and what gives us comfort today, comfort that is good for life and death, that we will reflect this evening using this age-old, millennia-old prophecy of Isaiah in chapters 40 to 42. Reflect on them so that in Philip's words we may understand what we read. Now, before we can understand them, we have to look at the context. Always look at the context that is, the historical, the general context. In the ancient Near East, there were usually predominantly local agricultural gods. And the issue was which one to bribe with what. The local god of the land, Canaan, was Baal, also the god of the fertility. So he was probably important but then a a god of a victorious country or nation was more powerful than the one of the beaten country. So you could switch and you could combine because gods were not exclusive. And that is of course where the big challenge for Israel lay because for them there was only one god ruling the universe. There were no other gods, no idols, and no alliances. And you see, in a way, it's not so very different today, because also many people today go with the flow of whatever idea is politically correct or prevailing in the society they live in. And we all see it broad and inclusive interfaith communion and respect. And beliefs can, of course, be replaced by something that supposedly is more powerful as science progresses, many believe it eliminates the need for God and the Bible. But Israel's God was unique, and he could not be seen, but he had to be trusted exclusively. And the kings, according to Deuteronomy 17, had to lead the people herein by example. Only then could they live in God's presence, as it was represented by the temple in Jerusalem, in peace, and in prosperity in the promised land. Now, against that background, you can understand why the exile was such a terrible event when it happened. Because God had either abandoned them or he had lost out against other gods. And then there is the historical context, of course, of Isaiah. Isaiah was probably upper-class Jerusalem, well-educated, scribe, possibly related to the royal family and with access to court. And he lived about 150 years before the exile, but he predicted it as well as the return from it. Now, he lived in the days that the northern kings, their northern neighbors, at long forsaken God and consequently the ten tribes are eliminated by the Assyrian king Sennacherib, or maybe his predecessor Salmaneser. You can read it in 2 Kings 17. Probably happened in Isaiah's lifetime. And the Judean kings were very much a mixed bunch in giving Israel the right example of trusting in the Lord. Isaiah probably died at Manasseh, a particularly vicious and godless character, of whom 2 Kings 22 tells us that he reinstituted the high places, mediums, necromancers, and that he burned his children as sacrifice to the idols, and that he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. It's the Jewish tradition that has it that Isaiah was the prophet mentioned in Hebrews 11, in the clouds of witnesses of faith who were sworn in two, But most Isaiah's interaction was with Manasseh's predecessor, Hezekiah, of whom the Bible tells us that he tried to do what was right. But that in his relying on the Lord alone, he wobbled seriously several times. When Sennacherib, the one who had destroyed the northern kingdom, comes back for Jerusalem 20 years later, Hezekiah does initially not trust the Lord, but he wants to go off to the treaty with Egypt, the other superpower of the day. And Isaiah warns him that this will be in vain, that he should trust the Lord. And when Hezekiah listens and trusts in the Lord, the Lord saves him by overnight killing Sennacherib's army of 185,000 men. You can read the warning in Isaiah 30 and the story in chapters 36 and 7. But then a little bit later, after having been miraculously healed from a sickness and given another 15 years to live, Hezekiah wobbles again. And this time, he thinks that he better makes a good impression on the Babylonians, who he, correctly, saw as the power who would replace the Assyrians and, uh, of Sennacherib, And he does so by showing them how rich and important he is. And that event brings us also to the literary context of our text. Because these are the histories recounted in the book of Kings, but also in the preceding chapters in Isaiah 36 to 39. Now the prophecy of Isaiah is often divided into two, sometimes three sections. The first one, the chapters 1 to 39, is called the book of judgment or the book of warnings. And in it, Isaiah warns successive kings against trusting in idols or in alliances, (coughs) for that will result in the exile. Israel will lose the promised land, the temple, the house of God, and so they might think, no longer be his people. And the second part, from the chapters 40 onwards, is sometimes called the book of consolation or of comfort. And in it, Isaiah assures the people God will, notwithstanding the exile, not leave them. It is not a strict separation. There are some elements of salvation also in the first half, in the chapters 10 and 11, and there are elements of judgment also in the second Part, chapters 56 and 57, but broadly that seems to be the emphasis. And because of this change in emphasis and the change in style, because the historical narrative becomes poetic, visionary language looking forward into the future, and mostly because Isaiah in the second half contains predictive prophecy about the exile and about the end of it through Cyrus, it is often said that this second part is by a different author from the time after the exile pretending to be Isaiah. But it is often so that when people start to make these assumptions, complicated, fragmented, speculative, that they have missed the very point that the text makes And so it is here. For now, let us look at the text. After all Isaiah's warnings to Judah and its kings, that is the historical narrative of Hezekiah and his wobbly trust in the Lord. And it ends in chapter 39 with the verses 5 to 7. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty, the time will surely come when everything in your palace, all the stuff that he had shown, and all that your fathers have stored up until this day, will be carried off to Babylon, and nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will be born that will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." And of course, having seen what happened to Israel, the northern kingdom, Hezekiah knew. That means the end of the Davidic kingdom. And against the background of what we said earlier about what the people in the ancient Near East believed, you can understand what a terrible blow that would be. Not only practically and physically, to the extent that they weren't killed in battle or executed afterwards, they were robbed of all their possessions, carted off to a strange and faraway land where they they would be an oppressed minority. But also, spiritually. Because was now Yahweh, who had kept the Davidic kingdom going for 400 years, longer than any dynasty in the ancient Near East, was he now proven less powerful than these idols of Babylon? And what about the promised Messiah, the ultimate Davidic king? Would he then still come? And the questions are, of course, still with us today. Where is God in this world? Where do I see him in the goings-on? And if in that situation, Isaiah wants to comfort the people of Israel with the promise of a return. The remnant will return. And a continuation of God's faithful love, you can see that that raises immediately three questions. Can God bring his people back? Is he having lost, so the view would be, from this God, Marduk of Babylon, would, is he powerful enough to do that? And then the second question, will he, does he want to bring his people back? Because they have betrayed him, ignored him, ignored his warnings, followed other gods. Does he still love them? And then if he can and if he wants to, how then? Because God is holy. He is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah refers to him by that name quite frequently when warning Israel and us for the consequences of their rejection of God. If he is a righteous and holy God, how can he then not destroy an unfaithful, idolatrous, and ever-sinning people? And I think the last question is worthwhile digressing on for a moment, because many people struggle with the idea of the wrath of God, with the idea that somebody had to suffer on a cross for our sins. Because isn't God supposed to be love? And if he is almighty, why can't he just forgive sins and ignore it or sweep it under the carpet or make it go away? But the righteousness and the holiness of God necessitates that sin and unrighteousness be dealt with. Have you ever wondered why if somebody has been murdered or killed in an accident and the perpetrators go to court but they get off on a technicality or a light sentence that time and time again you can see on the telly the family there upset and in tears and some solicitor reading out a statement that says how upset they are and that they can't have any closure, and so on. Well, you see, man is made in God's image. And unless they have completely seared, their conscience closed. People still know that a wrong and injustice cannot be ignored and swept under the carpet. And that is why these stories continue to speak to people and are on the telly, even if the victim wasn't particularly important or interesting and the story doesn't contain really any news, and the sentences they are reading are just the standard phraseology that comes off the solicitor's word processor. And that is even more true for God, because he's holy, and he is righteous, and that is incompatible with ignoring unrighteousness. And therefore, a solution has to be found for Israel's and our sin. And in the prophecy of Isaiah, we find the first outlines and the contours of that solution. And what we learn is that in addition to the picture of the powerful, the Davidic messianic king, who will bring worldwide peace, which Israel was familiar with and still was the predominant expectation at the time of Jesus, which picture Isaiah also draws... In chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, he there says, With righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness to sash around his waists. And the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lay down with the goat. But in addition to that picture, of the powerful bringer of peace, he also starts showing the picture of the suffering servant, which the Lord understood, but his disciples initially found so difficult. And Isaiah gradually unfolds that picture in what are called the servant songs, the first one part of our text, 42, verses 1 to 9 and then later in chapters 49, 50, and 52. So returning now to Isaiah's assurance of comfort, of redemption, of return, of salvation, and to the three questions that that posed, can God, does God want to, and how then, let us look at the chapters 40 to 42. And I would like to summarize the message from God's word for you this evening as follows. God will give you comfort in all the difficulties of life and notwithstanding our sin. And we know three things. He can do. He wants to. And he does so through the suffering servant. So God will give you comfort. He can do. He wants to. And he does so through the suffering servant. You see, the historical narrative in chapter 39 has in factual terms reported how the prophet Isaiah, after all his and the Lord's earlier warnings, tells the king and the people that punishment for their lack of faith and trust the exile that it will come. But then he lifts his eyes from the miserable past and presence and looking into the future in poetic, visionary language he starts telling them that the Lord will not leave them in their misery. And the vision that Isaiah sees says that God orders a number of disembodied voices, as it were, to give his people comfort. Comfort ye, it's an instruction, it's an imperative in the plural, to give comfort to God's people. Who the voices are that he instructs is not so important, but the messages of comfort they give, these are. First, verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The time of hardship, of exile, it will end. And the sins which led to this disaster are forgiven. How will be resolved later, but here there is the confirmation up front. The punishment has been settled. The word used literally means all the double. The book has been closed on that iniquity. And then there is the second voice in the verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low, and the rough ground shall become level, and rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. You see, God, after all, is not that local deity beaten by the Babylonian (laughs) With power and unstoppable, the Lord will come through deserts, mountains, and valleys. These are the words used by John to describe the coming of the Lord Jesus. And God's glory, always associated with the temple in Jerusalem, which would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, will be seen by all the earth because he was, is, and always will be the universal ruler of this world. And then there is the the third voice in the verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord breathes upon them. Surely the people are grass. You see, mankind is vulnerable and easily extinguished. And this theme returns in (coughs) chapter 42 with the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. And that was true for Israel, turned out to be true for the Babylonian Empire. But the word of the Lord, his promises, they will stand forever. And then there is the last voice. Jerusalem and Judah speaking again, and it says that the Lord will use his might to gather his dispersed people. He will, as the good shepherd, gently gather his flock out of the diaspora together again. And that is the comfort that Isaiah offers to Israel and to us, that the fool, the frail, and disobedient people who refuse to trust in God and sought their own salvation in earthly things that he is the good shepherd will gently gather his flock out of the diaspora. That they will be here again by the almighty reliable God that they had rejected after their iniquities have been dealt with. And in order to convince them and us of this comfort, Isaiah then proceeds to answer the three questions that we asked before. Can he? Does he want to? And how then? Because there was in the first place, God will give you comfort. He can do it. Because, verses 12 to 17, he is the creator of the world. In answer to that unspoken question, can God give his people comfort once they have been taken into exile? Has he now not lost out? to these mightier gods of Babylon. And like the people today may say, do we still need God? Now science can explain it to us all. And now we can rule our environment with our technology. Do we still need to trust and pray to God? In response to these questions, Isaiah posed five rhetorical questions that you can find in this section. Who, 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 who? And they all imply the same. God created the world Nature, knowledge, nations, it all comes from him. And that is where it pretty much stands today. Because science, in a somewhat desperate attempt to have their assumptions about a universe without the creator not being refuted, is pushing its origin ever further back. But nobody has been able to explain how we get from nothing to something. There was nothing, and it banged, so nothing banged. And so God still stands there at the beginning of the universe as its creator. And then God can give you comfort because, verses 21 to 26, he rules the world. No ruler, not even the powerful Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the temple and carried Israel into exile, can resist the Lord. Verses 23 to 24. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, and then he blows them on them and they wither. Because rulers and princes are pretty much like all other people before God like the grass that withers and the flower that fades. And that is pretty much what we see around us. Some person, one moment may seem in charge and all-powerful and important, and the next moment he's gone. Somebody shot him and his corpse in a couple of minutes. And in between, in the verses 18 to 20, Isaiah resumes his warning against the idols because God can certainly not be compared to them. They cannot save. They are just things people met for themselves and then they trust him. And maybe in our society it's no longer carved images, but there are theories, structures, celebrities, heroes, the people first form for themselves and then they want to worship and trust him. And so Isaiah makes his first point. The Lord who he prophesied will give you comfort. He can do it, and nobody and nothing else. And the next, the prophet is in a way transitioning from he can to he wants to, in the verses 27 to 31. To the doubters, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my cause is disregarded by my God." because it it can easily happen to us that we doubt and that we feel the Lord has lost sight of us and is ignoring us or is not concerned with us. But here he tells them that the all-powerful Creator will use his power to give strength to the faint and the powerless. Left to their own devices, even young men will become faint, weary, exhausted. But the Lord will renew their strength. And that brings us to the second point: God will give you comfort, and He also too. In chapter 31, there is mentioned of islands or coastlands. Now you have to realize that the Jews were not a seafaring nation. To them, the sea was treacherous, unreliable, unruly, full of unknown creatures. And islands and coastlands which could only be reached by traversing this sea, were for them equal to the remotest, the most unreachable corners of the earth. And it is these lands that are invited in the verses 1 and 5 to witness that God wants to and will be with Israel in the verses 8, 10, 13, and so on. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I, uh, made for I am your God. For I am verse 13, the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. 16, but you will rejoice in the Lord and the glory of the Holy One of Israel. And 17, but I the Lord will answer them. I the God of Israel will not forsake them. They are not to fear. God is with his people. How will God do it? Well, as the ends of the earth, these coastlands and these islands are to witness, God will bring in Cyrus that would ultimately release the Israelites from exile. Chapter 41, the verses 2 and 3. and then verse 25. Now the first references to this king are oblique and vague. He is later mentioned by name, 200 years before he lived in chapters 44 verse five. It's this Cyrus that is mentioned in Daniel, but also at the end of Chronicles and at the beginning of Ezra with his decree. And if the book of Isaiah is taken at face value and the claims that it makes are accepted It is predictive prophecy. And that is, of course, what many experts find difficult to accept. And that is why they suggest that part of this book was written by another, a later or after the exile. But it goes against the very argument that the prophet is making. Because what the ends of the earth and the coastlands are also invited to witness is the uselessness of idols. Because after the prophecy that God will call out Cyrus to deliver his people in 42, in 41, the verses 2 to 3, the coastlands are to witness how the people are scrambling again, very much like in chapter 40, the verses 18 to 20, to make themselves their own idols. They approach and come forward, each helps the other, and they're saying to his brother, be strong. And the craftsman encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes with the anvil. And he says of the welding, it is good. And then the prophet ridicules the whole effort. First the people are encouraging each other to make these idols, and then they have to nail them down so that they don't roll over. And in the verses 21 to 29, God explicitly explicitly challenges the idols and exposes them as useless because they can neither explain the past nor tell the future. God foretells, again, that he will call Cyrus in, in verse 25. I have stirred up the one from the north and he comes and so on. In similar language as in chapter 41, verse 2. So God says, I am announcing what I will do. He spoke words of prophecy, the verses 26 to 29. But the idols, they were clueless about it. So if you want to explain away the element of predictive prophecy, you have explained away the very argument Isaiah makes. You have missed the point. The idols are useless. It's only God who rules the world and its history. you find it difficult to believe in foretelling. Well, if you believe in God as creator and the ruler of this world, as Isaiah here just has been doing, and if you believe that the Bible is his word, then logically it's not difficult. But if you don't believe that God is the creator or that the Bible is his word, well, why bother at all? So we heard also, Isaiah's second point: Not only can the Lord give you com- can the Lord give you comfort; He also wants to do it, and He will do it. Here to Israel, in the first instance through Cyrus, that He hear, whom He here predicts, but He will also do it for Israel and for us at another level. Because after all, we don't need Cyrus anymore. But we do need God, bringing us back to Him after our sins. And the contours and the outlines of Isaiah's prophecy do not only fit Cyrus, but they also fit another Saviour of a later time. There are many Old Testament references that fit not only an Old Testament figure like Solomon in Psalm 2, or that we sang, or in Psalm 110, but also the Messiah. And that is why the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter, verse 10, one Peter one verse ten that the prophets, not fully understanding it themselves, predicted the suffering of Christ for our benefit. And that then <coughs> brings us to our last point. Because in chapter forty two there is a new element. That is the third question. How then? How is God going to be both holy here also several times, and righteous, and at the same time going to save his sinful and wandering people. Well, at one level we saw he saves them through Cyrus, here alluded to earlier, but that did not yet deal with the moral angle of not ignoring injustice and evil. And that is why Isaiah here starts drawing the contours of an other solution even further out into the future, that of the suffering servant whom God would choose. The features in the Old Testament are still subdued. Even in Isaiah's prophecy, they are only revealed step by step. Here in this first song, there are some features of the Messiah brought out, but other aspects, like the suffering of the servant quoted in Acts, come only out in the fourth song. And it is also clear from the New Testament that people had initially no clear understanding of this aspect of the Lord's task. We read it in the New Testament. But when Israel had the reliability of God's promises confirmed through the appearance of the predicted Cyrus, they could even be more more even more certain of the reliability of God's promise to deal with their and our sin through the suffering servant. And then when we look at this servant here we note that he is brought in by God. Chapter 42 verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. God has chosen him, given him his spirit. He upholds him and is delighted in him. As the Lord Jesus himself will to say, especially in the Gospel of John, it is the Father who sent me. The other thing we note that is that he did not arrive with a lot of noise. Chapter 42, the verse, verse 2. Like the rulers of this world, they come with military might, Shooting, explosions, chariots, bang, bang, bang. Or through elections, where they're beating their own drum. Boom, boom, boom. You can see it on the telly for as long as you like. It's nothing like that. The Lord came as a lowly child. A man without majesty, Isaiah tells us, that we should look at him. or Without beauty, that we should desire him. A lowly king riding on a donkey. But we also note that he is the all-powerful ruler who brings the just rule. Chapter 42, the end of verse 1. And he will bring justice to the nations. And 42, verse 4. That he will go on till he has established justice in all the earth into its remotest corners. Here we have the islands and the coastlands again. And they will be waiting for his just rule and law. Like Moses brought God's law, so Jesus brings his. We read after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For his teaching was as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And we also note, that he is the gentle shepherd, chapter 40, forty-two, verse three, and the bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. His people, whoever they are—Israel in exile or we with our own challenges—he will treat ever so gently. Israel was nearly broken; they would be slaves in exile, and their faith weak and desperate. And we may be down at times and lack any energy in our faith. But as the Lord himself says in Matthew's gospel, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you will find rest for your souls, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And not yet in our text, but in the fourth song, we will learn that he accomplished this all by bearing God's wrath against the injustices committed by man. And so we learn then in the first place, God will give you comfort. And he does so through the suffering servant. So briefly then, and in closing, We saw that the prophet Isaiah confronted the people and their ruler, the king, and so also us with the shocking and the terrible drama of the exile, the living without God, thrown out of the promised land, cast away from his presence as the unavoidable consequence of abandoning God and trusting in their own idols. Carved images, political alliances, science, power, money, whatever it is today. But we then also saw we saw him lift his from the present. And poetic and visionary language we heard him tell the Israelites and us God will give you comfort. He can do, he wants to, and he does so through the suffering servant. It is a very counterintuitive message, isn't it? Saved by a suffering servant. It's very unlike the princes in which most people put their confidence. The movers, the shakers, the muscle flexors, the all-knowing professors, the power players, you can all see them strut in front of the TV cameras all the time. And well into into the New Testament time, were the Jews expecting more of a national hero as a messiah who would set them free from the romans but the new testament goes on step by step to confirm that the man from bethlehem is the expected messiah both the just ruler and the suffering servant that was first his baptism baptism in matthew 3 and behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here the Lord is confirmed as the royal Davidic Son of God, quoting Psalm 2, which we sang, and as the suffering servant, by quoting Isaiah 42, verse 1. And then secondly, we heard the Lord himself confirming his understanding, that he is to suffer for the sin of mankind. Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is using here the words of the fourth song. And then finally, in Acts 8, we hear the New Testament Church confirm this understanding in Philip's teaching to the Chamberlain Do you understand what you read? And beginning with this very scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. So then, let us return to the question from the beginning. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And in fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And if about this confession we feel at times uncertain, or we haven't made it yet, Then listen to the Lord Jesus. Come unto me, you weary, and I will give you rest. I will give you comfort. O blessed voice of Jesus, which comes to hearts oppressed, it tells of benediction, of pardon, grace, and peace, of joy that has no ending, of love that cannot cease. Amen. Let us pray.